hope is uh, absolutely essential for us. Absolutely essential. How can we survive uh, in really the chaos of our lives um, in this present time even, thinking, thinking about that, without hope? Numerous studies have shown that the feelings of hopelessness, if you put those in conjunction with a mental disorder, uh, you can lead to suicide quickly. Um, two such studies were conducted at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. One study tracked close to 2,000 psychiatric outpatients deemed to be at risk for suicide, and the other tracked about 200 hospitalized psychiatric patients deemed to be at risk for suicide. All the patients were assessed in various different ways. Their levels of hopelessness were indexed on a scale known as the Beck Hopelessness Scale, and they were recorded. Individuals were tracked over the next several years, and in both studies, significantly more suicides occurred in the group of individuals who exhibited the highest levels of hopelessness. In a movie in the past, I don't quote movies ever. I'm doing it tonight. It won't become a pattern. In, in a movie in the past, there's a memorable line on hope. Quotes, remember, Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies, end quotes. That maybe from a worldly perspective just shows for the, the call of the heart, even for a man with a marred image of God, longs for some kind of hope in this world. But for believers, for believers, those who have been reborn, we don't even have, we don't have a cliche hope. We have the real hope. We have a living hope. Not a shadow hope of this world, but, this, but the true aching and longing for a lasting living hope given to us by the Spirit. And I'm telling you, in spite of the strangeness, in spite of your maybe disagreements, in spite of the questions, in spite of the unanswered eschatological things here in this passage. Uh, at the end of the day, there is, I think, no sweeter hope for the people of God than what is found in our passage here tonight. So we have to quickly review. Let me tell you where, I've, where we've been here. In the last few chapters of the book of Daniel, um, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel realizes that the prophecy of 70 years is to be fulfilled, and so he prays for his people's repentance. So they'd be brought back to the land. But then he gets, he gets his answer to that prayer is a prophecy and at the end of Daniel chapter 9. And at the end of that prophecy, when, when at the very end, iniquity would be atoned for, everlasting righteousness would be brought in, the vision and the prophecy would be sealed up. And all of those things that are ultimately and finally fulfilled at the end, at the second coming of Christ. But until then, desolations were determined for Israel. And it's not a happy prophecy at the end of Daniel chapter 9 for Israel. And in fact, at the very end of Daniel's 70th week, 
On the wing of abominations comes one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So there was, there was just not a, a bright picture for, for, the, for world history for the people of Israel until the end when she's rescued. And then we come to Daniel chapter 11, and, and again, we have another vision there where Israel, it's Israel's future, and we've got the, all the, the nations of the world, and the Medo-Persian empire is focused on in, in, the, in that, that prophecy in Daniel chapter 11, and that's broken down into four generals, and there's two of the generals, the that are highlighted, the, 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 the northern generals, the kings of the north, right, from way up in Syria and down in Egypt, the kings of the south. Those two generals are highlighted, and the historical detail in Daniel chapter 11 is unbelievably precise and was fulfilled perfectly historically without any question in that chapter. But it was oppression after oppression of the people of God, Israel, caught right in the middle between this epic war of the king of the north and the king of the south. And all of that, all of that culminated in verses 21 through 35 in Daniel chapter 11 with Antiochus Epiphanes who sets up the abomination of desolation in 168 B.C. And if not for just the seed of a remnant, holy remnant, the Maccabean revolt, um, it seems even all would be lost. A horrific time for the nation of Israel. So the nation of Israel is being refined and purged by God all throughout history, and it culminates at the end. And we come to that time of ultimate refining, ultimate purging for the nation of Israel in verse 36 of chapter 11. Okay, and that's where we kind of ended from verse 36 on to the end of chapter 11 really talks about the, the king who is one like Antiochus Epiphanes. And in chapter 11, Antiochus Epiphanes, right, historical figure is thrown, is a type of one of the great Antiochus to come at the end, the Antichrist. And so we talked about who he is in Daniel chapter 11, verse 36 of Daniel 11, then the king will do as he pleases and will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things and so on and so forth. This is the Antichrist. This is not Antiochus Epiphanes. In history in 168 BC, this is thrown to the end as Daniel is known to do and does so here, verse 40 of Daniel chapter 11, at the end time. You got the king of the south colliding with him and the king of the north colliding with him. And this, this king of the north, the prophesied great Assyrian warrior, the enemy of Israel, this king of the north, is going to get the upper hand and all the details, and he'll stretch out his hand against the other countries, verse 42. He will gain control over the hidden treasures. Rumors from the east and from the north will disturb... All of those are yet future at the end of chapter 11. And I believe we are meant to take and interpret those exactly how we did with the first part of chapter 11. Literally, grammatically, and historically, 
interpreting the Scripture. We don't change our hermeneutic midstream in Daniel chapter 11. Now, so in verse 45, he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. And then chapter 12, now at that time. I believe the time at the beginning of chapter 12 is, is the time when the king of the north is finally defeated in fulfillment of prophecy. And, and the, the political situation is such, in, in the last uh, half of the last week of the tribulation, that the Antichrist, there's a vacuum left for him, and the Antichrist comes into power. And now, when we come to chapter 12, verse 1, now at that time, there was a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. That is the time in chapter 12, verse 1, the last three and a half years of the tribulation, when the Antichrist is unabated um, with power and basically begins to unleash the ultimate and final fury on the people of Israel. And that's what we have in chapter 12, verse 1. And, and it's really quite a deal that this great tribulation, this final three and a half years of tribulation um, occurs, where this Roman ruler full of authority opposes the Lamb of God. There's no more religious. There's no more political opposition to him. He sets himself up as the only object of worship. That's recorded in Revelation chapter 13. He breaks the covenant with Israel. It was recorded in Daniel chapter 9. And he desecrates the temple. He ends Jewish worship. And that's recorded in Daniel chapter 9 verse 27. Take a look back there at Daniel chapter 9 verse 27. And he will make a firm covenant. Okay? He will make a firm covenant with the many. The many is the Jews. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. And we pick up on that now in chapter 12, verse 1. It's called the Great Tribulation. And this Antichrist is going to prosper in his persecution and blasphemy and his self-exaltation for three and a half years. This is a time of tribulation in the last three and a half years as presented clearly in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, which speaks of the Antichrist. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for time, one year, times two years, one plus two is three, and half a time, namely three and a half years. And Daniel was greatly alarmed at this news, and his face grew pale. And, and we see that same prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, that happens right in the middle of the week. He puts a stop at the sacrifice and the grain offering and the wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate. And then we come then culminating to Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 and the text says there's a time of distress such as never occurred and 
uh, until there was a nation until that time. How long is that distress going to be in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1? There will be a time of distress. Well, look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. From the time of the, the regular sacrifice is abolished. Ah, there it is again. Daniel 12, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. You guessed it, 300, three and a half years, the Jewish calendar of 30 days. This is the great tribulation. We know Jesus speaks yet future in Matthew 24, verse 21, because it's future in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 is definitely future for you and for I, for verse 2 says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. And the last time I checked, that was the physical resurrection from the dead, which is everybody agrees that eschatological. Therefore, this is future. At that time, brings verse 36 through 45 into the future as well, clearly talking about the beast, the Antichrist at the end. So, this is what's happening. This is at the end. This is a horrific time for Israel. Uh, Zechariah chapter, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 8 says that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, and the third will be left. The whole book of Revelation from chapters 14 through 19, in my view, describes its future and describes where these great catastrophes that overtake the entire world the breaking of the seals, the blowing of the trumpet, the emptying of the vials of divine judgment de basically decimates the population of the world. This is the last three and a half years is a time of great stress, the great tribulation, and we've seen nothing like it yet. That's a review. What is, there, what is the hope for Israel as the people of God and for us? grafted into the promises of Israel, the people of God now in a way of typology, even now experiencing persecution in our exile, ultimately fulfilled in Israel during the tribulation time. What is our hope? How, how is there hope for believers right now being hunted for the Taliban in Afghanistan as we speak and we've forgotten about? Will the people of God endure to the end? Will the people of God endure until the very last and most severe period of suffering? And the answer is yes, but not without hope. Not without hope. Don't be not without hope. So there are four reasons for hope in the midst of the horrific events of this life, right? Which which we entering into the rich prop, uh, prop people of God through the rich root of the gospel and Abraham are sharing in into this suffering, but not in the culminating way that we find in our passage. But certainly all of these things will apply for us as well. What is the hope for the people of God during that great tribulation? It's the same as our hope right now. Number one, watch this. The first reason for hope is, and now we get to the handout, because of the rival. Because of the rival. Look at verse 1. Okay, get ready. I told you this is going to be a lot. I hope it's being recorded. Because of the rival. 
Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. The rival is here. His name is Michael the archangel. He is the only God. He is God's agent to to be at war in the spiritual realm during this last three and a half years as the protector of the people of God. There's a great war in heaven that occurs. We saw a picture of it in Daniel chapter 10, right? The prince of Persia. Do you know there's a demon uh, over over Persia? Did you know that we have an, in Israel, the nation of Israel has an archangel named Michael that rivals the, the, the Satan-empowered beast in the end? This is one of the great hopes of this prophecy. Let me, I'll read Daniel chapter 10, verse 20. The angel says to Daniel, after he picks himself off the floor finally, You understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. Spiritual warfare. So I'm going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. The prince of whom? Daniel's people's prince. Who's the people of Daniel? Israel. Michael is not... The prince of Persia, Michael, is a good archangel, the prince of the people of Israel. Michael is the archangel that wars for the nation of Israel. And during the time of great distress with the great enemy of Israel, the Antichrist, the final big A Antichrist, and there's been many. At that time, Michael, the text says, the great prince will arise who stands guard of the sons of your people. Who's the people of Daniel? If you're reading this book in its context, Israel. He's speaking to Daniel, who are Daniel's people. So this is a war behind the war, and we have hope because God sends a rival against the satanically driven Antichrist. And he's a protector, a guardian for the people of Israel during this three and a half years. And this is recorded for us in Revelation chapter 12, 7 through 17. If you'd like to follow along as I read, you can, but I'm going to start reading now in Revelation chapter 12. Let's start in verse 7. Here it is. Here's Michael. And there was a war in heaven in Revelation 12, verse 7. And Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He accuses them before God day and night, and they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. Verse 12, For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing he only has a short time. 
And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he was persecuted. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time. Oh, sound familiar? For a time and times and half a time, three and a half years from the presence of the servant. The great rival and guardian has arisen. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The, the human agent of all of these atrocities in the great tribulation against the people of God against Israel, is the Antichrist. But the Michael, the guardian of Israel, the refuge of Israel, the rival, is waging war. It's war. It's an intense battle. But ultimately the war will be won because the agent of God, the guardian of Israel, has arisen. And that is the hope, the first aspect of the hope of Israel, a rival named Michael the archangel, arises during the most horrific time he is sent and war is waged. And the people of God are guarded. And that leads us to our next point of hope in the passage, because of the rescue. Because of the rival, number one, number two, because of the rescue. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation. It's talking about Israel, the nation of Israel here. It's talking about Daniel's people until that time. And by, and by the way, the distress for Israel has been constant and will be constant. But it hasn't, you didn't see nothing yet. No wonder he trembled at most of these prophecies. Everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. So the nation of Israel here, the direct application of this prophecy, the angel Michael, the prince of Israel, the guardian angel of Israel has arisen to fight the enemy of Israel, the satanically empowered Antichrist. A rival has arisen and there will be rescue. That's hope. The rival to the dragon who empowered the Antichrist is working and the people of God are being saved in the tribulation. There's a, there is a couple of phases to this rescue. Number one, during the tribulation, there's going to be a, a lot of um, judgment poured out on Israel and purging and refinement. But there's also going to be a great revival that is part of that time. In the, in the midst of the greatest of horrors. Many will come to faith in Messiah during this time. A um, number of different reasons for this in the book of Revelation that we don't have to, I can just mention for you because you'll want to know. One is the miraculous defeat of the northern king that was prophesied in Joel chapter 2, 1 through 11. And they would be celebrating that prophecy. Now the Antichrist arises, but that, that is a faith builder. Revelation chapter 11, you have the 1260-day ministry of the two witnesses. Perhaps the testimony of the 144,000 sealed 
believers in Revelation chapter 7 and 14. All of these reasons and the underlying work of the rival and the spiritual warfare going on during that time, there is a revival. There are many of the people of God who will turn to the Lord in that last three and a half years. But the ultimate rescue for the people of God during the great tribulation will be this, the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's been all throughout Daniel. We'll have to review it at some point. Part of the rescue is the beginning implantation of revival of the people of God. There's, there's, there's people that are being saved, and, and the apostate Jews will be judged as two-thirds according to the judgment that's poured out according to Zechariah. One-third who's this, the witness is taking seed in the heart will be saved and will be rescued in the end. We make it clear that the rescue only occurs when the Christ comes and then the resurrection and the reward follows after that. We know this is the darkest time in history and the Messiah will come like bright light and divide the sky and rescue His people at the time. Not all the people of Israel will be delivered, right? Two-thirds will have experienced judgment. According to Zechariah 13, verse 8. Startling figure, one-third of the populace is spared. Israel's identity as a nation survives through that one-third. And those are the ones that survive are the ones whose names are written in the book of life. They're the ones in whom are who come to their come to their Messiah. And at the end they look upon him and whom they pierced, and they mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And so all Israel, or should I say all Israel, left, shall be saved. I like what one scholar named Wood wrote, uh, quote, many Jews will have become true believers in God. Besides this, the rest who are spared from the Antichrist suppression will give their full allegiance at the time of Christ's second coming and power to destroy the great army of the Antichrist, affecting the final deliverance for Israel. The names of those in both groups who experienced the revival and those who are formally rescued in the end, the ones that look upon him whom they pierced, will be found written down in God's book of life. End quotes. So the persecution will be so intense, but by God's miraculous provision and protection that will be preserved in one third of them. Not if you're an unbelieving apostate. Not if you don't receive the Messiah. But there will be a godly remnant, as one has said, ready to greet their Messiah and have it come together when he returns. Paul describes this in his letter in, I think it's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1-10. through 10. I'm not going to read all of this. But look at verse 3. Just listen. Let no one deceive you, for it will not come until the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God and object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself to be God. In the temple of God, not yet future at Paul's time, takes his seat, the temple of God, 
in the final week, still future. Don't you? Rem Paul says, don't you remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now? Is that restrainer the Holy Spirit or is it Michael the archangel? Who knows? There's all kinds of things that are opened up to my speculation of that restrainer based on this study. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Right now, they're antichrist. And the mystery of lawlessness is typed right now to be exploded in the end. And the mystery of godliness and union with the gospel and the people of God and these principles are now ours spiritually, united to the people of God and the Abrahamic covenant right now, but not yet. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. When is that going to happen? When is the big A Antichrist taken out of the way and the people of God rescued? Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. All power, signs, and false, wonder, uh, false wonders. That is the rescue, final rescue of the people of God comes at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you what, I'm thankful that my name is written in the book of life. Are you thankful for it? After this? Your deliverance as part of the people of God grafted in, according to Romans chapter 11, is assured. Your deliverance, like Israel, is assured because your name is written in the book of life. Your eternal future is absolutely secure. Your rescue is final. Your name is written in the book of life. The book of life, as one has said, is a guarantee of final and certain salvation. We have hope in the midst of our horrific situations because of the rescue in this passage. The third reason for hope is because of the resurrection. Verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake after the rescue, after the coming of Christ. There's going to be a resurrection. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Let me give you my translation of that verse because I don't think this happens at the same time. Look at the, Hebrew, look at the way it's written in the, in the text. Many of those who sleep in the dust. Is that all who sleep in the dust? No. Many who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So, a paraphrase in my view would be, and many that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. These, right, these, which is the many that are awake, will awaken to everlasting life. And the others, those who don't awake at this time, to shame and everlasting contempt. It may seem like in, one, in this one verse that the resurrection will occur right at the same time. Absolutely not, in my view. When you have fuller revela re revelation of, the, of 1 Corinthians and, and other John chapter 5, 
John chapter 5, which I preached on, verses 20 through through 29. The grammar allows for two different resurrections at different times. The grammar itself here with the many and the other lends itself to that possibility right here. So I personally think that this resurrection, the many here, not the all, but the many, and certainly not all, is going to be Old Testament saints and the tribulation martyrs, according to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 4. This is called the first resurrection. Others will rise after the millennial phase of the kingdom, which are the unregenerate of all ages in Revelation 20 verse 5. We will rise to face God in the great white throne judgment. You say, but this seems to be like they're all together. It, does, it, actually, it actually allows this to be clear in the, in the actual wording that it could be different times and different people. In fact, it's definitely different people. Look at Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he will be released for a short time. Verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast nor his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Many, not all, many will arise on that day. They came to life and reigned with Christ for how many years? A thousand years. The rest of the dead, the others, the rest of the dead, verse 5, did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Praise God, that's us. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. You say, you say you're parsing too many resurrections. There's a first resurrection in 20 and there's a second resurrection. And it makes sense to me that the clarity of eschatology would be found in the last book of the Bible. It's not... A shock to me that more information is given that helps to make sense of all these other things. So, we have an incredible hope for a future bodily resurrection. However you want to do this, all together or separated out, like I've presented to you, it doesn't matter what your view of eschatology is, here's what we all agree on. We are going to be resurrected in the future bodily. If you don't believe that, you're, her you're a heretic. A 1 Corinthians 15 heretic. You don't believe in the bodily resurrection, Paul says. If you don't believe in that, you don't believe that sin's not done. We have this hope. It's the resurrection chapter. Christ is the first fruits of the first resurrection. When's the first phase of the first resurrection? When Christ was risen. 
You don't like phases? Well, phase one. Phase one. Phase two, there's some other saints that popped out. Not like Lazarus. Resurrected. Phase two. Do you like phases? Phase two. And so on and so forth. The first resurrection of believers, the second resurrection of the great white throne of judgment after the millennial kingdom. Now, we all believe that we're going to rise from the grave. So here's, here's the hope. Verse, let's, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. Now you have it written down in your, in your notes, so just listen. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood, this stuff, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But I, behold, I tell you a mystery that we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death. Where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Now watch this. Many will rise to eternal life. Wow, eternal, risen to eternal life. Isn't that wonderful? We'll get to that in a minute. But, but there, the text does say that there will be some, now hear me, there will be some that will be risen to, to what? What does it say? It's a disgrace and everlasting contempt. I can't, it's, I don't even like preaching on this, but I'm going to. Are you ready? There are some who die apart from Christ who do not have a body yet, but are in torment. Then will come a time when they seem to be escaping and they take upon an immortal body. They seem to be escaping only to stand before the great white throne of judgment and now be fitted with a body that is ready for eternal contempt. And they will be tossed with the arch enemies of God into the lake of fire forever and ever without end. It's so somber, I don't even like talking about it. This disgrace, this great shame. They're disgraced as they stand before the Lord, having rejected Jesus the Messiah. And Miller says, Miller, the commentator says, quote, So shocking will be the fate of the lost that onlookers must turn their faces in horror or disgust. This contempt will be everlasting. That is, it will endure for all eternity. End quotes. Revelation 14.11 says the bulk of their torment goes up, I'm sorry, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. C.S. Lewis liked to think about this. I don't think you know that about C.S. Lewis. 
he said this. Quotes. He thought about being apart from God, and he says, I think these are sobering words. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to one day will be a creature which, in some ways, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else that person would be a horror and a corruption such as you would now meet, if at all, in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one of these other destinations. There are no ordinary people, he says. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, are snobs to, exploit. who will end up in horrors or everlasting splendor. End quotes. C.S. Lewis. We have to see this if we're going to have hope. You realize what everlasting life means. We can endure anything in this world if we have Jesus, if we have the hope of future bodily resurrection, if we have the hope of everlasting life, we're going to be okay. <laughs> and that leads us to our fourth and final cause for hope because of the rewards. Verse 3, because of the rewards. Verse 3, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What a picture of believers here in this passage. Let me tell you what, what a believer is like. Those who have insight. And those who lead the many to righteousness. Those who have insight and those who lead the many to righteousness. True believers in this verse. Having insight and underst is understanding and believing God's Word. That it's true. And that you can't help but instruct others in this truth in teaching and evangelism, which is leading many to righteousness. This is not the official teachers of the church. This is all Christians, the descriptions of the believers in this passage. We all need encouragement on this hard road holding to heaven. This is your calling, to have insight and to, to lead the many to righteousness. John Calvin in his commentary in Daniel wrote about this verse, quotes, No one of God's children ought to confine their attention privately to themselves. But as far as possible, everyone ought to interest himself in the welfare of his brethren. God has deposited the teaching of his salvation with us, not for the purpose of our privately keeping it to ourselves, but of pointing out the way of salvation to all mankind. End quotes. This is what a Christian looks like. We are disciple-making disciples of Jesus Christ. That is the definition of a Christian. We learned in Luke chapter 5, a saved Peter is called into service. From now on, we will be catching men alive. The hope for believers then, right here, that's what believers are, is that we will shine. Watch this. This is your future. 
This is your future. Are you ready for it? How can I even talk like this about people? It's in the book. The hope for believers that they will sh- that we will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, like the stars forever and ever. I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds really good. A lot better than the other one I was just talking about. Eternal life and brilliant glory are in our future, reigning with Christ. 1 John 3, 2, Now when He appears, we shall be like Him. Don't know what that means, but it sounds really good. Not endless boredom, sitting on a cloud, playing a harp, but endless glory. Revelation 22, verse 3, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And they will have foreheads, they have real foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the, the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And I know that instead of getting hope, we have so much, so many questions and so many challenges to what even we see here. But sometimes we need to remember the main point for the people of God, Israel and those grafted in, is this. We have hope even in the midst of horrors. Of horrors. We have a sure, untouchable, eternal hope through faith in Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but... My life is tough. I'm a crybaby. I need hope. I need to be reminded of these things. We have hope because there, is, there are rivals to the dark forces all around us even as we speak. And there is a rival that will arise in the end named Michael. And we have hope because of the rescue for the people of God culminating at the second coming of Jesus. And we have hope because of the promise of the resurrection to eternal life. And we have hope because of the rewards of the future eternal kingdom that are shockingly compared with shining brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and even like stars forever and ever. This is the hope that we have. So in a sense, the line from that movie resonates with me. It does. Hope is a good thing. Yeah. It is. Maybe the best of things. No, it is the best of things. And I'll tell you, no good thing ever dies. Because Christ will never die, we united with Him. And His goodness will never die. So let me ask you one last question. We have one more sermon in Daniel unless we sum it up to finish up Daniel chapter 12. But what has been your response to this message? Yes, we have questions. But let me ask you this. Is following Christ going to be worth it? God's answer in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, is a resounding yes. Sorry about that information load. For those of you who weren't here, you're going to have to go back and listen to that. I summarized the first 20 minutes, but 
I hope you are still encouraged. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for, I, for how the scriptures tie together. Lord, we have a lot to understand, especially the already and the not yet of this, all that works. Pray that you continue to teach me, continue to teach us, make us teachable, humble, and transparent as we have godly, really fun discussions of how this might play out in our lives today. We're thankful for the great hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you are alive, Lord Jesus. We're thankful that you are our full forgiveness. You are our full righteousness. You are our alive, everlastingly high priest who ever lives to pray for us that our faith would not fail. You will keep us in the double grip of the Father and the Son. The work that you began, you will, you will complete until the day of Christ Jesus, a day when you win in history. And so we're so grateful for those great promises. We need it. We need to be encouraged by it. We'll encourage our hearts where we are struggling tonight and help us to be faithful to each other in this passage. Like this passage says, to be to have insight. How can we have insight apart from being in the Word? Lord, help us to be there and to gain insight. Make the churches of, of this nation preach the Word to their people. Give us insight into your word that we might be able to instruct others in the paths of righteousness. Snatch them, as it were, out of the fire. Thank you, Lord, for tonight. Um, send us home with your blessing as we pray now for the next 15 to 20 minutes until 8.15. Um, ask, Lord, that you would uh, bless our time in prayer as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.